Good morning again. We are deep, deep into our study of uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, if you'll be turning to Hebrews chapter 10. I actually turn to John chapter 19. I want to I want to share I want to share something with you there that's really going to set the table for our study this morning. And I guess if I've asked you to turn there, I should turn there as well. John chapter 19. Let's look at verse Go down to verse 28. The word of the Lord says, Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Jesus is obviously on the cross. We, we just gathered around the table and celebrated um, not only the death, but more importantly, the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and in order that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Several weeks ago, um, I shared with you what one preacher had laid out about all of, the, all of the Bible is about Jesus. Everything is pointing to Jesus. He said, in the Old Testament, we have Jesus predicted. In the Gospels, we have Jesus revealed in the book of Acts, we have Jesus preached. And then in the epistles, we have Jesus explained. And then in the very last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we have Jesus expected. So in a sense, the first part of Hebrews chapter 10 explains one word that came from our reading in John chapter 19, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But it's hard for us to, to truly understand the atmosphere in Jerusalem surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus. This certainly was not new to the citizens of Jerusalem. They had seen many crucifixions, undoubtedly. But quite a stir had led up to this moment where Jesus finds himself hanging on the middle of three crosses. And at a time where you would expect the sun to be at its brightest, the Bible says that the sky was turned to total darkness. The scripture tells us from about noon until 3 p.m., darkness came over the earth. The crowd was mocking Jesus. The two things, the two thieves, rather, even found the strength to join in, for a time at least, hurling insults at the man in the middle. Jesus uttered several things while he was on the cross, and we don't have time to mention all of the sayings that Jesus said while he was on the cross, but most notably he said, Father, forgive them. 
for they don't know what they're doing. And then, piercing both the physical darkness and the spiritual darkness of this day, Jesus uttered one final word. One word. Tetelestai. Tetelestai. Why would Jesus say, finished? That one Greek word, we translate into English three words. It is finished. Why would Jesus say that? Well, probably to the crowd who was, who was there mocking him, uh, that's exactly what they think. Jesus is finished. It's over with. This false Messiah who came and he blasphemed, saying that he was the Son of God, and he called the temple his father's house, claiming himself to be equal with God. It's, it's over with. This guy's done. He's finished. Surely, to others in the crowd, maybe they just thought, well, he's just, it's just a cry of relief. It's, it's finally over. There's been a, a, a mock sham trial, bogus trumped-up charges, Finally, Jesus is weary, and he just simply says, it's finished. It's over with. But actually, you know that it was a cry of victory. We sang the song last Sunday, Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. That's exactly what Jesus was crying, a cry of victory. He had finally accomplished the work on earth that he had come for. One word. The key word as it relates to God's eternal plan of redemption, tetelestai, it is finished. And that one word really sums up these first 18 verses in Hebrews chapter 10. We find the Hebrew epistle explains what was revealed in John's gospel. So Hebrews chapter 10, Jesus deliberately and freely endured judgment in our place. He made salvation possible by establishing this new covenant. We've been talking about that over the last several weeks. And the chief blessing of this new covenant is forgiveness of sins. So why would it be necessary for Jesus to die in this way? Hebrews chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood, right here, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, the law was only a shadow. The repetition of the sacrifices year after year, day after day, actually just showed their ineffectiveness. They became an annual reminder 
that something else needed to be done. This was not taking away our sins, and it certainly was not cleansing the conscience. So the necessity of why Jesus died as a sacrifice for sinners is made very clear, perfectly plain to them. So this morning, as we work through our text, I simply want to show you, really just remind you, how the Trinity, that's, that's not a Bible word, that's not a word that we get out of Scripture, but it's, it's how we describe God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the triune God. I want to remind you how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all involved, all involved in this plan of redemption. So first of all this morning, it was all according to the Father's plan. All of this was according to the Father's plan. Look at verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came, it, it, isn't that what we talked about last Sunday, when Christ came, chapter 9? When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You were not pleased. And then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. And then down there in verse 9, he repeats the same thing. He says, here I am. I have come to do your will. Let's turn over to 1 Peter. I've got to show you a verse here. 1 Peter chapter 1, just a few pages And look at verse 20. Uh, let's go back to verse 18. We'll get a little context. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Look at this. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. He was chosen before the creation of the world. You say, is this significant? Yes, it's so very significant. Some would say that, that God had come up with a plan, that way back in the Old Testament, God came up with a plan, but somehow it went terribly wrong. And so now God has got to come up with a plan B uh, to, to correct what had gone wrong uh, in the Old Testament. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. God never had a plan B. There was only plan A. It was always God's plan to send his son. And it says that he was chosen before the creation of the world. It was always the Father's plan. From all eternity, the Father had chosen the Son to be the one who would provide an atoning sacrifice for the sins of many. There was no plan B. This is always God's plan. And when Jesus comes, he takes the words of Psalm 40. This is one of those psalms that we talked about early on, one of four psalms that the Hebrew writer uses uh, to unfold what Jesus has done. 
And Jesus takes those words and he gives them their ultimate fulfillment. Look back at verse 5. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Hadn't God commanded all of those offerings? Hadn't God commanded the people to bring sacrifices? Yes, but it says God wasn't pleased. The prophets, back in the day, they confronted the people of their day about these sacrifices. Listen to Isaiah, the very first chapter, beginning of verse 12. And this is from the Living Bible. I love the way that this is worded. Who wants your sacrifices when you have no sorrow for your sins? The incense you bring me is a stench in my nostrils. Your holy celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, even your most pious meetings are all frauds. I want nothing more to do with them. The one who had told the people to bring sacrifices You've got to bring sacrifices. Now he says, I detest your sacrifices. The incense is like a stench in my nostrils, all of this stuff coming up to me. Why would he say that? Because their hearts were far from him. They were bringing these things because they had to. God designed these sacrifices for it to be a reminder that there was a disconnect between them and, and between God, and there was something that needed to connect them back to God. This, this sacrifice, the, the killing of this animal, the letting of this blood, was not just some useless tradition that they were supposed to do day after day and week and year after year. It was supposed to bring the worshiper into a closer relationship with God. And he says, I detest your sacrifices because your heart's not in it. They're, they're, they're meaningless to me. It's all a fraud. I don't desire this. An animal was, was coerced, if you will, was bound and laid upon the altar. But Jesus says, this body that you prepared for me, he lays his life down voluntarily. There's no coercion. He does it willingly. In fact, Jesus said, no man can take my life. You remember that? No man can take my life from me. There were times when, when, when they pressed in upon Jesus to kill him, that once they tried to push him off of a cliff, and the Bible says he just turned and walked through the crowd. Nobody could take Jesus' life. Jesus said, I lay my life down willingly. Unlike a bound animal that had to be coerced or bound and, and tied up on the altar, Jesus gave his life freely, a complete submission to the Father's plan. Go to the book of Isaiah. I want to share Isaiah chapter 53. This is written some, I don't know, six, seven hundred years before Christ. Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, we won't read all of it. Let's just go down to verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. 
And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It was the Lord's will to crush him. It wasn't just a band of rogue Jews in the first century that killed Jesus. It wasn't just a handful of Roman soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross. It was always God's will from time immemorial, from the beginning, before the creation of the world, it was God's will that Jesus be crushed for our iniquities, for my sin. Jesus didn't die just because a Roman soldier nailed him there. Jesus died because I am a sinner. Jesus was crushed for your iniquities. And it was always God's plan. It was always God's plan. John chapter 6, Jesus said, I came to do the will of him who sent me. The work of atonement was the plan of the Father from all eternity. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So it was all according to the Father's plan. Secondly, the Son's sacrifice. By now we know this, oh, we know this oh so well. Again, our reading this morning, beginning in verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, when Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Oh, the work of Jesus is over. Now, he's still, he's still praying for us. He's still interceding for us. He's still pleading our case before the Father. But there is no more sacrifice. Jesus' work is finally finished. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made perfect. Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have. The words of this song just kept running through my brain a couple of days ago. Man of sorrows, what a, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, 
Hallelujah. What a Savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Say that with me. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend? We sang that as well this morning. What could we say to Jesus to say thank you? To the extent that we still try to offer up some little sacrifice in order to make God love us more, anybody? That sound like any of us? To the extent that we still try to offer God some little sacrifice in order to make him love us more, we have yet to fully comprehend the Father's plan and the Son's sacrifice. You say, Rodney, the Bible says that we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, <laughs> right? And that's exactly right. We are. The Bible says there are a number of things. We are to offer the lips uh, as a song of praise, a sacrifice of praise to God. We're to offer him our gifts, the talents that we have as, as sacrifices of praise to God. Yes, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, but not in order to woo God's mercy. Not in order to make God love us more. No. There is nothing that we can add to the sacrifice. If it was, then it would not be a complete sacrifice. We are saved by the grace of God through our faith in what Jesus Christ has done. But yes, because we are saved, because of the gratitude that wells up in our hearts, because we say, hallelujah, what a Savior, then we offer our bodies. Holy and pleasing to God, that's our sacrifice. We, we give him our time. We give him our energy, our money. We, we sing praises to him. We offer the lips, our lips as sacrifices to him, not because we're trying to somehow get God to notice us that we're worthy of being saved, but because we are saved and because we're so grateful for the son's sacrifice. So we see that it's, it's the Father's plan. It's always been the Father's plan. We notice the Son's sacrifice, and now the Spirit, the Spirit's testimony. The Holy Spirit applies these truths to our lives. And how does the Holy Spirit apply all of these truths to our lives? He does it by the written Word of God. He testifies by the written Word of God. Verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, and you notice that he's quoting from the book of, of Jeremiah. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. No, lo no longer are they just written on tablets of stone, but now God's laws are written in our hearts, I guess I should do this first, in our hearts and in our minds. And then he adds this, and oh, what an addition. He adds, their sins and lawless acts 
I will remember no more. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions. And the Bible says he will not remember them anymore. You and I don't have the capacity to forget a lot of those things, things that we've done and things that have been done to us. But somehow in God's beauty, in his holiness, you come to God and you say, God, I'm sorry again for what I've done. I've, I've done this again. I did it last week. I did it last year. And here I've done it again. And God says, I don't know what you're talking about. I've forgotten it. I've forgiven you. That's what the power of the blood of Jesus does. It washes us clean. And in God's beauty and his power and his holiness, he says, I not only forgive you, but I won't remember your sins. Blessed is the man who sinned the Lord. will never count against him. That's the hope that we have. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Under the old covenant, there was a constant reminder of sin. But under the new covenant, there is a glorious reminder that our sins have been removed. They've been removed. It was planned by the Father. It was obtained by the Son. And it is applied by the Spirit. That's why Jesus said when he took the cup on the night before he was betrayed, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. That, maybe that's just starting to make sense for some of you. I hope it is. That what he said about his blood, this new covenant, that, that we are now under this new covenant. The old covenant is gone. And we've entered into this new covenant, cleansed by the blood of Jesus. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners. With one word, Jesus said, finished. It's finished. The Father's plan, the Son's sacrifice, the Spirit's testimony.